Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Ukraine's allies meeting for defense talks as Russia's foreign minister accuses NATO of engaging in a proxy war with Russia by supplying Ukraine weapons. What's he warning about? The COVID emergency order Title 42 will stay in place, at least for now. That's because a federal judge is set to block the Biden administration from ending it. We hear reactions from lawmakers on both sides. Love it or hate it, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. What kind of changes will this bring to the social media platform? New Mexico police have released footage of the movie set Rust. That's where Helena Hutchins was accidentally shot by Alec Baldwin last year. The UN Secretary General has called for a ceasefire in Ukraine. He's expected to meet with Russian leader Vladimir Putin later today. This, as Ukraine's allies and partners meet for defense talks. Entity's Jessica Beatty reports. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin kicked off defense talks with more than 40 countries at U.S. Ramstein Air Base in Germany Tuesday. He expressed confidence that Ukraine can win against Russia. Ukraine clearly believes that it can win. And so does everyone here. Austin called Russia's invasion baseless, reckless, and lawless, and he assured Ukraine full support. And you should know that all of us have your back, and that's why we're here today, to strengthen the arsenal of Ukrainian democracy. Meanwhile, over in central Ukraine, in the city of Zaporizhia, people are building trenches to shore up the city's defenses, preparing for a possible attack. Really, the risks are really considerable, and I would not want to elevate those risks artificially. Many would like that. The danger is serious. Ukrainian authorities say two guided missiles were fired at the city Tuesday. The regional military administration said one person was killed and one was injured. It says infrastructure facilities were damaged and a third missile exploded in the air. And over in Russia, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov warned the West Monday not to underestimate the risk of nuclear conflict over Ukraine. The work here is a regular one. We build fortifications which will save lives of our warriors and will let them effectively defend the city. He also accused NATO of engaging in a proxy battle with Russia by supplying Kyiv with weapons. Russia sent troops into Ukraine on February 24th in what it called a special operation to demilitarize Ukraine and root out people it called dangerous nationalists. Lavrov, defending Moscow's actions, also blamed Washington for the lack of dialogue, saying, quote, the United States has practically ceased all contacts simply because we were obliged to defend Russians in Ukraine. Lavrov said the Ukrainian conflict will end with an agreement, but its content will depend on the military situation. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. An armed man opened fire at a kindergarten in Russia's Ulyanovsk region today, killing two children and a teacher. One of the children was born in 2016, the other in 2017. The region's governor said another teacher was wounded and is receiving medical help after the incident. Citing a source, Interfax News Agency reported that the gunman later committed suicide. Russia's investigative committee says investigators have opened a criminal case over the incident. Today marks 36 years since Chernobyl, the world's worst nuclear disaster. The tragedy brought death, misery, and radioactive contamination to a large portion of Eastern Europe. 
Slavutich is a Ukrainian town where workers from the defunct Chernobyl plant live. Residents held a night vigil to mark the anniversary of the nuclear disaster. High levels of radiation from the explosion that occurred in 1986 are still present in Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. The plant again made headlines when Russian forces took it over in February. After weeks of fighting, the power plant changed hands again back to Ukrainians in early April. This as Russian soldiers pulled out from their attempt to take the capital, Kyiv. The 1986 disaster in then-Soviet Ukraine sent clouds of nuclear material across much of Europe. It occurred after a botched safety test in the fourth reactor of the atomic plant, killing over 30 people instantly. It estimated that over 100,000 people died of radiation-related illnesses. Berlin's Pilecki Institute is collecting testimonies from refugees about possible war crimes in Ukraine. The organization is tapping into its experience researching 20th century history, including Nazi crimes in World War II. Here's more on that story. The Pilecki Institute is named after a Polish cavalry officer who risked his life to document the situation in the Auschwitz concentration camp. Mateusz Falkowski, the deputy head of the institute in Berlin, said researchers are creating an archive of oral history. I hope that Ukraine will not be forgotten. So I am afraid. I'm afraid that after some weeks, months, years, the people in the West will just forget. And the hope is that they will not forget. That is, that they will remember. And in that case, they'll be able to rely on these interviews, on these materials, on these documents. The International Criminal Court started a formal investigation into possible war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine after Russia invaded two months ago. More than 369,000 people fleeing the war have been registered in Germany. The witness interviews start by asking for a short written description of the witness's own situation during the war, then follow up with specific questions created with the help of lawyers. So there are questions, for example, about what happened on a specific day in this place. So in Mariupol or in Kherson or other places, were they there and what exactly did they see and when? And whether it's about, for example, the destruction of civilian infrastructure, whether it's about the destruction of monuments or perhaps churches, or about sexual violence or other aspects of violence during the war. The UN's Human Rights Office said there was growing evidence of Russian war crimes in Ukraine, including signs of indiscriminate shelling and summary executions, and said Ukraine also appeared to have used weapons with indiscriminate effects. Russia describes its incursion as a special military operation to disarm and denazify Ukraine. It denies targeting civilians or committing war crimes. Lithuania's president, Gitanas Naseta, on Tuesday visited the USS Gravely. The warship is docked in a Baltic Sea port city. He told reporters after the visit that keeping the Baltic Sea open is important to the region. He said the Baltics are important for Lithuania's energy independence. In his words, it is crucial to ensure unhindered freedom of movement by maintaining the necessary allied military dominance in the Baltic region. Meanwhile, the Lithuanian chief of defense called the visit by the missile destroyer a sign of support for Lithuania by the U.S. And on Friday, Lithuania's president told Germany's foreign minister that NATO should increase its deployment of troops in Lithuania and elsewhere on Europe's eastern flank following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Congress is reportedly acting fast to consider and possibly pass measures to send new support to Ukraine. 
We hear from Amani Wells, who is a director at Soul Strategies, a firm that strengthens grassroots campaigns. She elaborates on how the U.S. is currently responding to the crisis. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yes, indeed. So can you give us an update exactly on how the war is being handled right now in terms of what Washington is doing? Yes. So um, here recently, again, Biden has decided to give another $800 million to Ukraine. Um, He says it's a pivotal moment in the war and doing this um, donation should be able to help our Ukrainian allies. Um, I'm not sure sure how effective that's going to be because it seems like Russia is very, um, very determined to reach their goal of recapturing Ukraine as their own territory. But hopefully, you know, the money that we're donating can go a little bit of ways in helping Ukraine defend themselves. Can you compare and contrast the different strategies that Republicans and Democrats have taken? Yes. Um, It's a very interesting time that we're in right now when it comes to this war, because a lot of people on the Republican side are kind of supporting Russia, which is something that we've never seen before. So in this particular um, political climate, we have seen um, a different level of support for them than we usually see um, throughout history. So as far as the climate today, I do see a very stark difference. Um, But back in the day, if we were maybe in the Bush era or maybe even 10 years ago, then the Republicans would be very um, Um, determined to enter this war. I definitely feel that way. And the Biden administration is more so entering the war from a financial standpoint instead of a military standpoint. Um, And I think that's what the biggest difference is. Now, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is continuing to blame the Biden administration, saying that if the U.S. had sent weapons to Ukraine before Mm -hmm. February 24th, that would have prevented Moscow from invading. What do you think of this? I don't think so. I believe the Biden administration purposely did not send those weapons because they were attempting to defend America from a possible attack on Russia. Um, Putin made it very, very clear that if anybody, including allies, got in the way of his efforts, then there would be retaliation of an extreme magnitude. And I believe that Biden did not send those weapons because he didn't want us to have any hostile um, threats on our own American soil. Amani Wells, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. According to an executive from a children's services group, the war in Ukraine has affected orphans there dramatically. And he says some orphans with special needs were not able to evacuate due to their disabilities. Joining us now is Dr. Rick Morton, who is the Vice President of Engagement at Lifeline Children's Services. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Morton. Thank you for having me. So how has the war in Ukraine affected you personally? Well, in our, our family, we um, all three of our children came home through adoption from Ukraine. Um, I've, over the last 19 years, I've been 26 times to Ukraine. So Ukraine's almost as a, a second home for us. And, uh, and so we really have been grieving the war and, and seeing the, the devastation and the destruction there, um, the impact on the lives of, of people, even extended family. Uh, of our children uh, that we still know and, and are aware of, and um, really, this is uh, this has been a uh, you know just a, a terrible uh, ordeal. Uh, even has really kind of challenged even the feeling of safety of our own children as they process the 
the things that are happening there. And tell us some more about your team that's been deployed to help families and children. Lifeline is, is doing several things uh, to, to help. First of all, we uh, have worked with partners in surrounding nations around Ukraine, uh, such as Romania, to house refugees that are that are coming needing uh, immediate assistance. And so we began in, uh, in really the hours after the war began to put a plan together to get food, clothing, and shelter, and to have that opportunity for people that are crossing into Romania, into Poland, and into other countries. Uh, we're resourcing uh, refugees centers and and as they provide kind of that first way station for uh, people that are that are running sometimes only with the clothing on their on their backs uh, we're also taking supplies into Ukraine and so down into the southern region of Ukraine we're we're able to, to mobilize supplies in and, and bring food and medicine and bandages and all kinds of things that are you know that are very necessary at this point but we're also looking at the long-term needs of, of children. And so we, we've mobilized a team uh, to Romania to begin to work with children and families um, dealing in trauma and, and really understanding that some of the effects of this war are things that cannot be seen but cannot be underestimated. Uh, and, and we know that for a long time, this generation of children that are growing up um, in, in the impermanence of war are, are going to be uh, feeling the effects and, and, and in need of care. Well, Dr. Morton, thank you so much for your update. Thank you. Title 42 was set to stay in place. The emergency order has been helping officials control the U.S.-Mexico border. President Biden wanted to end it, but a U.S. district judge said he's going to prevent that from happening. The judge is a Trump appointee, and Title 42 is a Trump-era border rule. It prevents illegal immigrants who come from countries with a high COVID-19 risk from entering the United States. The House Hispanic Caucus met with Biden and urged him to lift the order. The vice chairwoman said the lawsuit asking the judge to remove the order does not have the authority to reverse the CDC's decision saying Title 42 is not necessary. Um, and again, I want to remind everybody Title 42 is a public health authority. It's not an immigration tool. It's a public health authority um, that the, the CDC has said is no longer necessary. And that was the basis of which why it's being lifted. And the court orders, far as my understanding, which I haven't seen it yet, is that it does not make that, it doesn't reverse it. Arizona, Louisiana, and Missouri filed a complaint against the government over its ending Title 42. 17 states joined the lawsuit. The judge told parties about his decision at a closed status conference. That's according to minutes of the meeting that the court released. Court reporters said the court parties are planning to issue a temporary restraining order on removing Title 42 and will attempt to reach an agreement. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy spoke on the issue from the border. He said the border situation will be much worse if Title 42 is lifted. If President Biden lifts Title 42, what we see today will be much worse. A country without a secure border is not a country. And if Title 42 is lifted, it will be much worse. It's not just unsustainable now, it'll be uncontrollable then. In the meantime, the White House is still preparing for the repeal of Title 42. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that it's important to remember Title 42 is not an immigration policy, but a health authority. It was coordinated with the Secretary of Homeland Security and through an interagency process. And there's been planning in the works for months for this possibility that the CDC to take this action. On April 1st, the CDC announced it was terminating Title 42. The order is set to end on May 23rd. 
But Title 42 isn't the only policy up for debate. The Supreme Court is set to consider whether the Remain in Mexico policy will stand. President Biden wants to remove it. Former President Trump put it in place. It has required tens of thousands of illegal immigrants to stay in Mexico while their asylum claims are heard. Elon Musk has reached an agreement to buy social media giant Twitter, causing a wide range of reactions. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg reports. After three weeks of talks, Twitter announced a final agreement with Elon Musk to take the company private for around $44 billion. The announcement is bringing mixed reactions from people in anticipation of a new moderation policy. Musk is advocating for free speech, which he says is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. What it doesn't mean is not moderating content, right? So no matter how uh, how many platforms have come before and say we're going to be the free speech platform, they all moderate content. Musk said on Twitter, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. Some are wondering if banned accounts such as former President Donald Trump's will be reinstated. He doesn't believe in the permanent blocking of people or kicking them out of the platform. And that's opened the door for all the speculation about all the people being banned, you know, the, the past few years. Democrat Senator Elizabeth Warren says the deal is dangerous for our democracy and is calling for rules to hold big tech accountable. Some experts say that Twitter could place conditions during the sale, like when the Wall Street Journal was sold to Rupert Murdoch in 2007, making it a condition of sale that certain factors stay in place. They can put in some place some basic protections that don't allow all those harms that I identified to materialize, but that decision point and that window for that is rapidly closing. Talks began after Musk bought an almost 9% stake in the company and declined an offer to join the board of directors, which would have limited his stake in the company to 14.9%. Musk then made a final offer to buy the company outright. The board enacted a poison pill, a defensive measure, trying to really give them time to look for a second bidder or a white knight. That white knight never came. They were at the altar empty-handed, which is why ultimately over the weekend they had to sit down with Musk and try to hash out a deal. The billionaire's offer of $54.20 a share represents a premium of almost 40% compared to what shares were trading at prior to when he revealed his 9% stake. Co-founder and former CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, says he trusts and supports Musk in his deal to take the social media platform private. Dorsey posted a series of tweets saying, Elon is the singular solution I trust, and that he thinks Elon's goal of creating a platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is the right one. Musk is critical of Twitter's moderation and believes its algorithm for prioritizing tweets should be public. He says he will make the algorithms open source to increase trust. And he wants to make Twitter more user-friendly, add an edit button, and vows to defeat spam bots that overwhelm the service by sending unwanted tweets. Twitter shares rose almost 6% on Monday to close at $51.70. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A former tennis star is urging young players to stay off of social media as more and more players open up a conversation surrounding mental health. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Tracy Austin won the U.S. Open in 1979 at age 16 and advises young players to avoid social media as much as possible. But she admits that's easier said than done. I'm sure they're intrigued uh, about what people are saying. But, you know, stick to, if it's possible, stick to your values. Keep the people around you that you know have your best interest at heart. And keep your eye on the ball. The two-time major champion said that when she was rising to the top of the game, she was advised not to pick up the newspaper or watch what people were saying about her on television. Because it does hurt, and particularly when you're young, you're trying to grow up. It's difficult enough without everybody having a, a voice 
and an opinion about your hairstyle, your dress, your attitude, your whatever it is. Austin praised Naomi Osaka, who started a conversation about athlete mental health when she withdrew from last year's French Open, and world number one Iga Swiatek, who travels with a sports psychologist. It really opened it up for, I think, all sports. Finally, somebody was being open about it and talking about needing to take a break. Austin is currently working with the International Tennis Hall of Fame on a campaign, one that allows fans to vote on categories like Most Epic Rivalry, Best Cinderella Story, and Most Iconic Celebration. That's ahead of an enshrinement weekend set for July 15th through the 17th in Newport, Rhode Island. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Two-time Olympic snowboarding champion Chloe Kim announced that she will withdraw from competition next season. She says her decision is related to the pressure of elite competition. The 22-year-old says she wants to focus on her mental health after what she called a fun but draining year. Kim won the halfpipe competition at the 2018 Winter Olympics at the age of 17. That made her the youngest woman to win an Olympic gold medal in snowboarding. She then defended her title in Beijing this year. Kim told the media she needed a reboot, and when she feels she is ready, she will make her way back. Previously, after the 2018 Olympics, Kim also took a full season off to focus on her studies and mental health. The next Winter Olympics will be held in Italy in February 2026. A former football coach was fired by the school district because he refused to stop praying on the field. And on Monday, his case was brought before the Supreme Court. Broad implications on the separation of church and state rest on the outcome. NTD's Chenny Wu has the story. A coach who makes the sign of the cross before a game, a math teacher who reads the Bible before the bell rings, and a coach who hosts an after-school Christian group. These were all hypothetical scenarios brought up by the Supreme Court justices during Monday's opening arguments in the Kennedy v. Bremerton School District trial. The court is to decide whether the former high school football coach had the right to kneel and lead post-game prayers at the 50-yard line. At issue is whether, as a public employee, Kennedy's actions amounted to governmental speech, which can be regulated under Supreme Court precedents, or a private act separate from his official duties, which the First Amendment would protect. Justice Samuel Alito suggested that the school district fired Kennedy specifically for religious speech. Suppose that everything about this case is exactly the same as it was in reality, with this one difference. When Coach Kennedy went out to the center of the field on these two occasions, all he did was to wave a Ukrainian flag. Would you have fired him? The school district says that Kennedy's praying could pressure students to do the same and put the district itself at risk of lawsuits. The Supreme Court is expected to make a decision before its summer recess. Chenny Wu, NTD News. North Dakota lawmaker Roy Holmberg has resigned from office. That's after it was reported that he had exchanged texts with a child porn suspect. Holmberg is the state's longest-serving state senator. During his 46-year career, he rose to become one of the state's most powerful lawmakers. Reports emerged that he exchanged 72 text messages last August with a man jailed on child pornography and sexual abuse charges. The man is facing a minimum of 20 years in prison and a maximum of life imprisonment. Holmberg responded that he was unaware of the man's incarceration when he wrote to him. 
He said the text message exchanges were about a variety of things, including patio work the jailed man did for him. He called the news stories a distraction for the work of the Legislative Assembly, and he said he wanted to lessen such distractions. He has not been charged with a crime. Jury selection in the trial of Florida school shooter Nicholas Cruz must start over after the judge declared her own mistake requires it. Circuit Judge Elizabeth Scherer ruled Monday that she should have questioned potential jurors who said they would not follow the law before she dismissed them. The decision nullifies two weeks of work by lawyers for the prosecution and defense. The jury that is chosen at the end of the process will decide whether Cruz is executed for murdering 17 at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in 2018. Florida Sheriff A.J. Tony Smith of Franklin County had to arrest his own daughter during a drug bust. His 38-year-old daughter, Kristen Kent, was charged with trafficking methamphetamine, drug equipment possession or use, and cocaine possession. The bust occurred when deputies from Smith's unit made a controlled buy from Kent. Smith later said on Facebook that methamphetamine doesn't discriminate and that no one is immune. As a law enforcement officer, he said one must rise above when faced with many challenging situations. The sheriff said he will not give Kent any preferential treatment and will use the same tough love approach with his daughter that he takes with other drug-affected families. Crews are trying to protect a historic building from the Crooks Fire, which has burned nearly 4,000 acres in Arizona. The Palace Station, the FDA is reporting a recall because of a potential listeria contamination. The recalled products are one-pound packages of Hippie Organics French beans. Listeria can cause serious and sometimes fatal infections. The company is called Alpine Fresh. It's located in Doral, Florida, and voluntarily issued the recall, which is isolated to one lot. The beans are in clear plastic packages marked with lot number 313-626 on the back. No illnesses linked to the beans have been reported. The company says it's taking corrective action to prevent this from happening again. Customers can return the product for a full refund. And still to come, actor Johnny Depp concludes his testimony in the defamation case against his ex-wife. He said he was the victim of domestic violence. And a Texas court has halted Melissa Lucio's execution order. She was on death row for the murder of her two-year-old daughter. All that and more here on NTD News. New Mexico law enforcement officials released a trove of video evidence Monday in the ongoing investigation of a fatal October shooting of a cinematographer by actor and producer Alec Baldwin on the set of a Western movie. Santa Fe police have released footage showing the aftermath of the shooting on the film set of Rust, where cinematographer Helena Hutchins died last October. Hutchins was killed by actor Alec Baldwin when the revolver he was holding fired a live round that struck her in the chest. It then lodged in the shoulder of director Joel Souza, who survived the gunshot wound. Santa Fe County Sheriff Adam Mendoza also released body cam footage of a police officer arriving at the scene and an initial conversation with armor Hannah Gutierrez. Police said a formal decision on criminal charges would depend on further forensic work. The state of New Mexico last week fined Russ Movie Productions $137,000, the maximum amount possible for what it called willful safety lapses. Baldwin said live rounds should never have been allowed onto the set of the Western film at Bonanza Creek Ranch in New Mexico. 
A separate video shows the actor being questioned by officers, both at the scene of the shooting and in a police station. Now, all the rounds I was told, you need to verify, I think this is important, they take the gun, they enter the gun, and all the rounds that are in there were either dummy rounds, no flash, cold rounds, or rounds with a flash. In the rehearsal, there should have been nothing. It should have been a cold gun with no rounds inside or dummy rounds. Baldwin is a producer on the film. He's been named in several lawsuits filed in connection with Hutchins' death, including one by her husband, Matthew. The actor has argued in court papers that an indemnification clause in his contract shields him from personal liability. Actor Johnny Depp concluded his testimony in the defamation case he filed against ex-wife Amber Heard. He says he was the victim of domestic violence in their relationship and was broken by the time their marriage fell apart. Here are the details. I was, at the end, I was broken. Actor Johnny Depp concluded his testimony on Monday in the defamation case he filed against ex-wife Amber Heard. Of course there, there's sure. been negative stories. On Depp's fourth day on the witness stand in a Virginia court, Heard's attorneys showed the jury news articles that they said had damaged Depp's career. Entitled, Apparently Drunk Johnny Depp Cut Off at Hollywood Film Awards Ceremony. Well before the December 2018 opinion piece in the Washington Post, in which Heard said she was a survivor of domestic abuse. The next article, also from May 10th, 2017, a year and a half before the op-ed was published, says Johnny Depp reportedly drank heavily and was constantly late on the new Pirates movie set. Did I read that right? You did, reportedly. The next article, also pieces. from May 10th, 2017. Mr. This, Depp, this is a pathetic attempt. Mr. Depp, please just respond to the question that I'm asking you. What's your the question, next question, Mr. Rotten the next, the next document. Depp said he never struck Heard or any woman. The only person that I have ever abused in my life is myself. He said Hurd's allegations cost him everything. Depp was dropped from the Fantastic Beasts film franchise and a new Pirates of the Caribbean movie was put on hold. On Monday, Depp said Disney presumed he was guilty until proven innocent, adding that he planned to continue with Pirates of the Caribbean until it was time to stop. Captain Jack Sparrow was a character that I had built from the ground up. My feeling was that these characters should be able to have their proper goodbye, as it were. Depp concluded his testimony on Monday saying he was the victim of domestic violence in their relationship and was broken by the time their marriage fell apart. His attorneys played audio from a conversation that took place after Heard had secured a restraining order against him in 2016. Tell the world, Johnny, tell them Johnny Depp, I, Johnny Depp, Man, I'm, I'm a victim too of domestic violence, and yes. I, you know, it's a fair fight. In the recording, Depp proposed the couple issue a joint letter saying they loved each other and the media had created a storm around them. The suggestion was an attempt to find a peaceful settlement, according to Depp. 52-year-old Melissa Lucio is on death row in Texas. She's scheduled to die for the murder of her two-year-old daughter. Now, a court has paused that execution order while new evidence is reviewed. Here's that story. We're just so excited and, and um, we're, we're, we're waiting. We're, we're waiting for, for Melissa to come home. 
With just two days before the scheduled execution of Melissa Lucio, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals issued a stay that might give her a chance to prove that she did not kill her two-year-old daughter, Mariah Alvarez, in 2007. In a statement, Lucio said in part, I am grateful the court has given me the chance to live and prove my innocence. Mariah is in my heart today and always. It's a really tough time for all of us right now. Bobby Alvarez and his siblings have been visiting their mother in a central Texas prison where she has been on death row. She fell all the way down. From the first step up there, all the way down here. Her family says that day they were in the middle of moving. When Lucia was packing in their second floor unit, Mariah, who was unsteady on her feet due to a mild physical disability, fell down the stairs. She didn't show signs of severe injury, but became lethargic and two days later, unresponsive. We immediately called the, you know, the ambulance and from there, you know, got taken away. It just was just a horrible night. Court documents show Texas Rangers interrogated Lucio for hours about extensive bruising and suspected child abuse. The clip of this interview was provided by Lucio's lawyers. How are you not cold-blooded? How are you going to change our minds and prove to us that you're not a cold-blooded kid? I don't know how to change the minds. Well, you can tell us, start with telling us the truth. Start by telling us the truth. It wasn't going to stop until she told the interrogators what they wanted to hear. Lucio's lawyers say after hours of questioning the night her daughter died, Lucio was pressured into agreeing that she was responsible for her daughter's injuries, but never said she killed her child. Her defense team says the new evidence includes testimony the jury never heard from witnesses saying Lucio did not abuse her child. Lucio's lawyers also say the jury was not shown how Mariah's bruising could have been explained by a blood coagulation disorder caused by head trauma sustained in the fall. Now a lower court must review some of these claims, including that she is actually innocent. Five jurors have said with new evidence, they feel Lucio should have a new trial. Dramatic dash cam video from the Nashville area shows a suspect running over a police officer. It happened after Franklin police pulled over 26-year-old Roy Nicholson on a traffic violation. They asked him to step out of his vehicle after seeing a gun inside and smelling marijuana. Nicholson complied, but then broke away from an officer and managed to get back into his car. He then dragged two officers down Interstate 65, running over one of them in the process. Witnesses followed Nicholson and reported his location to police. He was arrested outside a nearby Walmart a short time later. He is now facing assault charges. Nicholson is out of jail on a $40,000 bond, and more charges might be filed against him. One of the officers was treated at a hospital, and the other only had superficial injuries. An unusual traffic accident occurred on a highway in Vermont. A chair flew out of the back of a pickup truck and struck a police car. Dashcam video released by Vermont State Police captured the scary moment. It shows high winds lifting the chair and slamming it into the windshield of the police car. The truck was traveling southbound on I-89 in South Burlington when the incident occurred. No one was injured, but police say their vehicle sustained serious damage. The driver of the pickup truck received a ticket for not securing the load. Under Vermont law, loads on motor vehicles must be properly secured at all times for the safety of everyone on the road. State police said on Facebook that the accident is a good reminder. And still to come, Jacksonville is expected to select Aiden Hutchinson with the number one pick in the NFL draft on April 28th. The former Michigan player set a school record with 14 sacks in one season. 
And a badminton hall in Kuala Lumpur offers a glow-in-the-dark experience with hopes to draw more people to the sport. Learn more in just a moment here on NTD News. The NFL draft is coming up. The Jacksonville Jaguars are expected to select defensive end Aiden Hutchinson as the team's number one pick in the draft on April 28th. And it's easy to see why after watching Hutchinson's performance last year playing for the Michigan Wolverines. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. At Michigan, Hutchinson set a single-season school record with 14 sacks. He can trace his lineage to the late Joseph Bernardi an Army Ranger who was part of a secret mission in 1944. The mission began with 2,000 U.S. soldiers behind enemy lines in Japanese-occupied Burma and ended with approximately 200 Americans surviving. He was one of the very few that made it out alive, so, um, I mean, that is just um, an insane story. Bernardi died 15 years ago at the age of 84. Back then, Hutchinson dreamed of playing football at Michigan just as his father did as a captain and Big Ten Defensive Lineman of the Year in 1992, after matching a then-school record with 11 sacks. Guys that I played with would say to me, oh, it looks just like you, only four inches taller. And I'm like, really? And then we started watching old, my old film, and we started comparing stuff, and it, I, I see what they're talking about. Hutchinson capped a productive 2021 season with a spectacular three-sack performance against Ohio State to help bring an eight-game losing streak in the rivalry to an end. I got a good support system, really good at home. That's just like a couple days, you know, the first couple days were hard, but it's like, you know, with the people that I got in my corner, it's hard to stay down. The Heisman Trophy runner-up led the Wolverines to their first Big Ten title since 2004 and into the college football playoff for the first time. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 17 years ago Monday, tennis great Rafael Nadal entered the top 10 of the ATP rankings for the first time. He has not left since. The 35-year-old, who's currently ranked fourth, extended his record-breaking streak on Monday to 866 weeks as an elite player. Nadal passed the legendary Jimmy Connors a little over a year ago, while rival Roger Federer sits in third. And with Nadal's favorite tournament, the French Open, set to start next month, it seems a good bet he'll keep going. Should Nadal win the French, not only would it be his 14th title at Roland Garros, it would also be his record-extending 22nd Grand Slam championship, putting him two ahead of Federer and Novak Djokovic. Three generations of the same family have now hit a very special hole-in-one. A grandfather, father, and son all completed the feat on the same golf course at the same hole with the same club. Here are the details. It all happened here, at the Tasmania Golf Club in Hobart. In 1999, Glenn O'Keefe hit his first hole-in-one on the eighth hole, but he didn't realize the extent of how rare that particular shot was. I gave Dad a call and said, I've got a hole-in-one, i got my first hole-in-one, and he said, oh, fantastic, that's brilliant. Um, which hole? And I said, I've got it on the eighth. He said, oh, fantastic, same as Granddad and myself. And he said, what club do you use? And I said, the five-iron. That five iron played by Glenn used to belong to Peter O'Keefe, his grandfather. In 1982, he scored a hole-in-one on the eighth, too. That's better. I think three generations getting a hole-in-one on the same hole would be pretty significant, let alone actually using the same club. When Peter died, the five iron was given to his son, Graham. 
He also used it to score a hole-in-one on the eighth hole in 1992. Graham then passed on the special club to his own son, Glenn. I didn't know the significance of actually picking the five iron out of the club. Probably done it dozens of times before. Stood up here and didn't actually think about what club to hit. If I had have known that, it, um, I probably would have hit a five iron every time. <laughs> Father and son Glenn and Graham recently visited the eighth hole with the five iron. Glenn said he'd be surprised if any other family in the world has experienced such a succession of hole in ones. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A glow-in-the-dark badminton hall in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, offers a unique athletic experience. Locals hope to draw more people to the already popular sport in the wake of the pandemic. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Neon lights run along the wall, electronic beats thumb, and a glowing red shuttlecock bounces back and forth. This is the shuttle-in-the-dark badminton hall, located at a fitness center in Kuala Lumpur. Range in the shuttle-in-the-dark, it's completely dark of course um, but with the lightning uh, somehow we are still able to hit it um, and then it, uh, it it requires better focus and um, it's exciting yeah shuttle in the dark was first set up in December 2021 and was meant to encourage more people to take up the sport badminton is one of Malaysia's most popular sports with a thriving community which has produced some of the world's top-ranked players. Badminton coach Lee Yan Shang said the glow-in-the-dark variant offers an extra challenge. Uh, the difficult is the, means the speed. First is the speed. Uh, because when we uh, look at the shuttle, right, the light come to us, then already the means too fast for us. Open to athletes at all levels of the game, Shuttle in the Dark charges $42 per hour to play and rent the neon equipment. Some believe the fees may be too high for the average Malaysian, though. Regular courts in Malaysia usually charge about $5 to play. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Just ahead, a manuscript writing cafe in Japan makes a great place for writers to fight procrastination and welcomes those who are chasing deadlines. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. A special cafe in Japan provides a productive workplace for writers who are catching up on their manuscripts. There's no way to walk out without meeting their set goals. Let's take a look. Procrastination is always a headache for writers caught up in deadlines. Now, this manuscript writing cafe is offering a cure. I've finished about 80% of the work. I think it's good to be able to concentrate on writing the articles without doing other unnecessary things. The cafe opened in April in West Tokyo. It offers a clean, well-lit environment for writers, editors and manga artists. Upon entering, customers are asked to write down their goals and the time it will take to complete them. The Manuscript Writing Cafe is a cafe for people to concentrate. When they enter the cafe, they need to write down their goals in the beginning, such as finishing a 3,000-word script or a column of two pages, and they can't pay until they achieve their goals. Cafe staff will hold customers accountable by checking their progress. There are different levels of supervision. They may confirm they have completed their task when they make payment, or they may ask for progress checks every hour. <laughs> customers may even choose to have staff watch over them as they work. 
The cafe went viral on social media, and people are saying that the rules are scary or that it's like you're being watched from behind. But actually, instead of monitoring customers, I'm here to support them. I would like everyone to finish their work. The owner says his inspiration came from a famous Japanese children's story. It describes an eccentric restaurant that sets specific instructions for customers to follow. One Chinese customer says she hoped the owner would take his business global. The demand to meet a deadline is a shared demand globally. No matter Japanese or people overseas, everyone would encounter a painful point when working with the deadline. So I think it will be great if this cafe can open overseas in the future. The cafe offers unlimited self-serve coffee and tea bags, along with a wide variety of beverages. The charge is around $1 for the first 30 minutes and about $2 every hour after. Customers can pay only after they achieve the goals they set when entering. Oats are something most of us have in the pantry, but they're often underrated and pushed aside. But here are a few reasons why they should be eaten regularly. Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. What's one of the healthiest, most underrated superfoods out there? Oats. Ask any dietitian or doctor and they'll tell you that you should be eating more of them. They're incredibly versatile, affordable and shelf stable as well as nutritious. You can serve oatmeal sweet or savory, hot or cold. You can stir in cinnamon, turmeric, nut butters or berries, or you can even put an egg in it. You can also add nuts, seeds and other superfoods. And if you want to change it up a bit, you can also bake oats into bars or make homemade granola. You can add oats to your smoothie and this is by far one of my favorite methods as it's quick and easy and makes a smoothie a little more filling. However you eat oats, here are all the benefits you'll be reaping when you do. Number one, digestive health. Oats are a super source of fiber and can help support a healthy digestive system. They contain both soluble and insoluble fiber, and they are one of the most convenient ways to boost your intake of fiber. It's a nutrient that most Americans don't consume enough of. Number two is heart health. Three grams of soluble fiber from oats can reduce blood cholesterol, which may help to reduce the risk for heart disease. A serving of oats provides about two grams, so you can try to add another small daily serving like a granola bar or yogurt topping. This will do your cardiovascular system a serious favor. Number three, satiety. Oats keep you full for longer. They're considered a whole grain, and this is another food group that most Americans don't eat enough of. Oats can be incorporated into hot, cold, sweet or savory dishes for any time of the day. They pair well with other nourishing foods such as fruits, vegetables and dairy products. They also pair well with plant and animal-based protein sources. This can enhance the quality of your overall diet. Oats are also super hearty and filling so you won't be tempted to stop by the vending machine for candy 20 minutes after you eat them. Finally, thanks to their mild flavor and ease of cooking, all varieties of oats provide a culinary blank canvas for creating nourishing and delicious meals and snacks. A herd of cows get their first chance to roam the green fields of a dairy farm in southern Sweden following a long, dark winter cooped up inside. Dozens of visitors gathered on the farm to witness the annual cow release. 
a marker of the start of spring in the northern European nation. Despite some initial trepidation when the barn doors opened, the cattle soon charged into the open fields, running and hopping around as they stretched their legs for the first time in several months. The cows will now spend the spring and summer months roaming the fields until they return to the barn in September or October. Due to Sweden's northern position, daylight levels vary considerably over the course of a year. In January, daylight only lasts for a few hours, while in the country's north, there is round-the-clock darkness. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Thank you.